Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. everybody welcome to rocks across the pond it's a curling podcast coming to you from richmond virginia my name is ryan mcgee and joining me as always our professor of peel dr jonathan havercroft in southampton england jonathan how are you today good uh, i just got back from lockerbie scotland which is uh well, that's where actually a lot of the good curlers come from. Eve Muirhead, Anna Sloan, Dave Murdoch's, all their junior picks are up at the rink there. So it's kind of a, one of the bigger bigger curling factories in Scotland. And uh, I was up there coaching this weekend. Oh, yeah. I saw your team uh, finished third at the Lockerbie Junior Tournament that was up there. Yeah, yeah they did well. Uh, and actually, they, they missed their last shot to get into the final. Like just like they just rubbed the guard last shot kind of thing. And I, I think that honestly, if it was past the guard, it was made for the win. So uh, uh, they had a chance to make the final and they're pretty happy. That was a good, good result for them. It's the first time they've qualified in one of the Scottish junior spiels. So they're feeling awesome. pretty pumped about that. Uh, mostly Scottish teams up there. Uh, this year was all Scottish teams except us in the past. Sometimes the Dutch or... Uh, Danish junior national team goes in there too, but this year it's all Scots. So was this the, and I guess this was their warm up for the, uh, world junior bees in, uh, Loha, Finland. Yeah. This is their last spiel before that. So it's our, take a little Christmas break, do a bit of training, uh, rest up and then fly to Finland on January 2nd. You're going to have them ready to go. Yeah, they were playing well. So if they, they can maintain that form over the next month, they'll, they'll do some damage, I think. Good deal. Uh, we have a ton to talk about. I got snowed in yesterday and had all day to watch curling, and we have a lot of topics to discuss, a lot of which happened yesterday. This week was the Curling World Cup and the Canada Cup, and we had a ton of live curling available to watch in the United States, surprisingly. Olympic Channel and NBC Network, NBC Sports Network covered the Curling World Cup in Ralston, Nebraska, and we were able to watch the Canada Cup on ESPN3. For, so it wasn't ESPN+, Plus, which is their extra subscription package that ESPN has. It was it was live streamed on Watch ESPN app and ESPN3, so tons of live curling available Wednesday through Sunday. It was pretty fantastic, and we will get to all of that later, especially what happened in the fifth end of the men's final at the Canada Cup in Estevan, Saskatchewan, which I just spent some time catching Jonathan up on what on earth happened and... <laughs> Sent him the video and audio of of what happened after the the final shot that was pulled. But first, we want to talk about some things that have happened here in the States when it comes to curling. The big story here uh, going into last week was out at the Curl Masabi tournament in Minnesota. There was a entrant that kind of surprised some people and made some news here in the United States. Former Minnesota Viking defensive end Jared Allen was on a team with 
former Rams quarterback Mark Bulger with John Benton and Hunter Clausen playing on that team as well. I believe Allen was vice skip, Bulger was lead, Benton was skipping, and I believe Hunter Clausen was playing second on that team. So it made a bunch of news because Jared Allen said that he basically had a bet with a friend that he could make the Olympics, and he chose curling over badminton as the sport that he wanted to try to do it in. So he's formed what he calls the all-pro curling team with Mark Bolger and then two other guys that were not at the tournament who are former Tennessee Titans, uh, offensive lineman Michael Roos, and I believe he's a linebacker, um, Keith Bullock. They were not at this tournament. Um. I think you want a punter if you're going to use an all-football curling team. Yeah, you do. Well, punting is winning, so that's why you need a punter. But they, they don't have a punter. Um, like a Swedish a Swedish place kicker. You need something like that, I think. Well, all the all the punters are Australian now. That's true. No, you need like – remember they had like all these Scandinavian kickers back in like the 80s and 90s? Oh, yeah, that's like Jan Stenerud and those guys. Um, yeah. Who was the guy yeah. – who uh, Uwe von Schaman was the kicker at the University of Oklahoma that made the made the kick to beat Ohio State in the seventies, like led Ohio State's marching band in what in the miss that uh, block that kick uh, chant, and then made the long <laughs> field goal to beat Ohio State. Uh, that was yeah, same same type of deal. Yeah. Um, actually, now that I think of it, you could get like four really good Australian punters and have them represent Australia in curling at the PACCs in curling. Yeah. I'm all for this. <laughs> all right. Same, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the Aussies have taken over punting. I think we, we pull some guys from Aussie rules football, teach them how to curl and, and take over the world yeah. that way too. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Jared Allen's team went to curl Masabi. They went 0-4. Uh, they were relatively close in a couple of games and a couple of games. They weren't their very first game. And I'm sure that this was not by accident. Their very first game was against team Schuster and team Schuster welcomed them to the professional curling ranks with a thorough butt whooping, um, on that team's way to Owen four. Uh, it also came out, uh, this week that Jared Allen's team, it, the, the full, uh, former NFLers, are going to play in the challenger round to try and make nationals. There are 16 men's teams entered for four I, spots in the challenger that's round. Up, isn't it? I think that's a, a jump. I think it is too. The women's teams, I believe are down. There's only seven women's teams entered for three spots in that challenger round. And both of those will be next month. Both of those will be in Minnesota. It, it kind of ruffled some feathers that Jared Allen thought that he could that his goal coming into this was to, to make the Olympics, I think. And I think people kind of blew that out of proportion. You know, I know he probably doesn't think that he can just show up and make the Olympics in four years. He probably realizes that he has to put a lot of effort into this. Don't you think? Well, I think let's go this way, but I know a lot of people are like poo pooing on the idea. I don't know if he can make the Olympics in four years, but to my thinking, a lot of people are discounting a couple of things. Like he's the 1% of the 1% of the 1% of athletic talent on this planet. First of all, if you're an all pro NFL player, like he's got to be freakishly strong, freakishly fit, freakishly mobile. So 
in terms of picking up the skill side of the sport, he'll probably pick that part up quickly. And then he's also to have made the NFL and been an all pro has to have a off the charts work ethic too. So, you know, if there's somebody who knows what it takes to play in the NFL and be an elite player in the NFL saying, you've got to go throw 200 stones a day uh, at the rink. If he's kind of serious about the goal, he probably already has the work ethic to do that. So it's not, it's not like after every Olympics, some guy coming in off the street uh, who watched on TV and greatest athletic accomplishment in the last year was drinking a six pack or whatever. It's, it's a legit like pro athlete trying to change a sport. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff with curling that doesn't translate from the sports side, like learning the strategy, um, the kind of psychology you need for curling would be quite different from the kind of psychological mindset you need to play defensive end, I think. So, um, there's differences too that may not translate all that well, obviously. And there's also just the timeline, like four years from novice to Olympics is basically unheard of, but there's lots of guys who join clubs and get really serious and throw every day and are actually kind of good top level club, kind of local competitive players within four or five years. So that's certainly not out of the question. Yeah. I also, uh, John Benton also made a point. The guy has, a lot of money and a lot of time on his hands to, to, to devote to this and become good. Now I doubt, I doubt the four of them together as a former group of NFLers is going to challenge for a national team spot anytime soon. But I think what they might have a chance at is what the USCA announced, which is the new, under five national championship, which I think is really cool. And I wish it had been around when I started, which it's going to be a national championship for anyone with under five years of experience since we've had this, you know, this amazing groundswell of, of new curlers in the country after John Schuster's gold medal win. So I think this is a great idea. I know that I give the USCA a lot of crap on our podcast, but this is a tremendous idea. I hope we see Jared Allen at the event. I hope that that brings some publicity to this event. And I hope I hope there's a lot of people that view this as something that they can do and, and go play in and try to win. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Uh, so it's basically a U.S. version of the Colts, which is kind of the big thing in Canada for under five. So... Who knows? Maybe they eventually have like a, a Colts Canada USA championship or something. So that'd be pretty cool too. Yeah, I think I think that that's a great competition. I think that that giving people at kind of the more novice end, more club end, things they can play in and progress at is one way to keep people engaged, right? So it doesn't have to be all about the Olympics. If you're like, oh, I could do the Colts instead, or the Club Nationals, or Arena Nationals. And that gives people something to aim for in their season that's going to really help people stick around with the sport, right? So it doesn't all have to be beating John Schuster at the Curl Masabi. Yeah, I think I think the the all pro curling team should should enter the under five, and I think Jared Allen should hire you as their coach. I'm available for a reason. Well, uh, un, well, it's Jared Allen, so an unreasonable price, but <laughs> <laughs> you said he had a lot of money, right? Uh, he should, unless he's unless he has somehow wasted it all. <laughs>
All right. Well, hopefully this is the pod and DM slides into your DMs, Ryan. So or yours. You're my agent. You're my your, agent. Okay, I'm your agent. All right. Do I get does that mean I get ten percent? You get ten percent, sure. All right. Well they they faced Team Schuster in their first ever game, which was a a heck of an introduction uh, introduction to professional curling. Team Schuster had a very good weekend. They competed in the second leg of the World Cup of Curling, which took place in Ralston, Nebraska. It was an interesting event. So you had two groups of four in doubles, women's, and men's. Um, in the doubles, the so that double round robin between the 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 four teams in each pool. The only the two teams that won the pool played in the final. There wasn't the there wasn't a page playoff. There wasn't a semifinal, anything like that. You basically you had to win the pool to advance to Sunday. In the doubles, Norway faced Switzerland. Going into that game, Norway was four and two. Switzerland was six and zero. Oh. Norway wound up winning ten to five. That was an interesting game because Switzerland cracked a four in the first end. So it looked like Switzerland was well on their way to gold. And then all of a sudden, Norway just played lights out and hardly missed anything from then on. Stole their, basically stole their way to a 10-5 win. Great, great job for Norway. Uh, that was uh, Magnus Nedregotten, who I, th- who I think plays uh, with the Wallstad team, and uh, Kristen uh, Skaslian, who was on the team that advanced out of European bees uh, earlier or back in November. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's not with mixed doubles, those kinds of comebacks are, are basically built into the format, right? I think it's I think in regular curling, you, you cough up a four bagger first end. <laughs> it's, it's probably over. I can think of very few times I've seen, uh, and elite teams come back, right? But mixed doubles mm-hmm. is there's so many stones in play. Uh, if you can kind of get locked into a good position early in the end, um, steals are always available. So, and you can't really run a team out of rocks like you can in conventional curling. So it's I mean it was a good game, good comeback. You have to kind of do it for seven straight ends, which is the impressive bit. But uh, mixed doubles definitely is is capable of like putting up some gong show scores where it's like, you know, 10, eight or a whole bunch, you know, I score three, you score four kind of game. So. Yeah. It was, it was fun to watch in Norway. Just, I mean, they, they hardly missed a shot after that, after that first end on the U S side of things, the U S was represented by Joe Polo and Tabitha Peterson. They went four and two in Norway's pool, but so they had the same record as Norway, but they had one fewer point. Remember in this, in the Curling World Cup, you get three points for a win, two points for a shootout win, one point for a shootout loss. So they kind of do they do they do the standings points based on how the NHL should do their standings points, where you don't get you know, you, you get a point if you if you go into the extra. But in the in the curling world cup, they actually give you the full they each game is worth the same amount of points, but then, you know, you get you get the you get the charity point if you do force the shootout. So they had one game against China that went to a shootout. So while they had the same record as Norway, they had one less point. So Norway went to the final to face Switzerland. The surprising result 
out of these standings was Olympic gold medalist John Morris played with Kalen Park, and they only went two and four in in Switzerland's pool. So a, a, a disappointing finish for for John Morris, who you know only plays mixed doubles now. So he he went to this event and kind of struggled. Yeah, but that's like, I, I does he has he played with Kalen before? It's kind of it's, it struck me as kind of a thrown together team, and I think I don't believe so. But Kalen, you know, she's a former Canadian mixed doubles champion. She's played this for a long time. She's pretty good at it. She used to play with Charlie Thomas, and that group broke up. Um, you know, his his usual partner Caitlin Laws was busy this weekend at the Canada Cups. So they had to find find a partner for John and. Kaylin's a very capable replacement for for Caitlin Laws. Yeah, but I think you know, like, there's that. There's there's the whole team dynamic thing with mixed doubles, right? Like, it's you, you don't know. I, I do think that Caitlin Laws and Johnny Mo caught like you know lightning in a bottle kind of thing, right? It was mm-hmm. just like they they hadn't. I don't think they even played together before uh, the Canadian trials, and they just got hot. Uh, and their path was basically execution, right? Like if, if I go yep. back and look at the, the curling percentage, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I did, did look at it right after the Olympics. And they were like several points shooting percentage wise clear of everybody else. Like they were, they were both shooting high seventies, low eighties. And most of the, the other teams, the Olympics were low seventies and a few even high sixties. So um, like they, they just overpowered people. Kaylin Park's a good curler, but she's not, Caitlin Laws kind of level, right? She's not, she's not someone who's going to go out in a spiel and a, a kind of a, a major event in average, average in the eighties, uh, like every time out, like you, you pretty much can put Caitlin down for that. Same with Johnny Mo. But the, the other thing is just the dynamic. Like if you haven't really played together, still figuring pretty basic things out that can, especially in mixed doubles, which has got its own weird, weird nuances to it that can throw things off too. So I, I wouldn't, put too much into it uh i think i also think morris is looking for something different right now I, it seems to me at least for this season his primary goal is to to kind of use the gold medal and mixed doubles to to be an ambassador for the mixed doubles game because he's got the the mixed doubles spiel he's hosting in banff i think mm-hmm. next month and he's been going out and playing at a lot of high profile events but that's all he's doing at the moment so i think his goal in curling is not not winning championships anymore. It's, it's, I think in a sense it's building his brand as Mr. Mixed Doubles or whatever for the moment, at least. So I don't think, I mean, he's a competitor, but I don't think it's, it was kind of his primary goal this year to win a, the world cup of curling either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if he represents Canada with somebody else at the third leg of the curling world cup later, I believe, I believe in January in Yonkaping. Uh, Sweden. On the women's side of things, we wound up with a rematch of the PACC final. This time, Japan avenged their PACC final loss to Korea, winning 7-6. Korea honestly controlled this game the whole time. They did a great job of punishing half shots that Japan made. Uh, Korea led 6-3 after 5. And they also led 6-5 with Hammer going into the eighth and final end. Remember, they only play eight ends at the Curling World Cup. However, they, you know, they 
they didn't try to really run Japan out of rocks. They let Japan get some get some rocks around the twelve foot. So they had, you know, they had an open draw, open draw to win with their last, but they slid too deep, gave up a steal of two, and lost this game after controlling it the whole time. So Japan wins, and they punch their ticket to the grand final in Beijing in May. Still an impressive run by the Korean team. The Korean team is all teenagers, and they continue to add to their already impressive resume as they take up the mantle for the silver medal winning Kim Eun-young team, um, who is not really on tour this so far this year. And you can, you know, there's there's lots of news about that, and you can you can read about that. But the this is this is Kim Min Jai. I'm sorry, Kim Min Ji playing for Korea. So now she has a silver at the Curling World Cup and she has gold from the PACC. So they will be fun to watch at Worlds later this season. Um, There were comebacks all over the place for Fujisawa. This was not her only comeback of the week. In her first game, she scored three in the eighth to beat Anna Hasselborg. And then two games later, scored three in the eighth again to beat Eve Muirhead. Her only loss was in the last draw to Eve Muirhead, but that was after um, the Fujisawa team had already clinched their spot in the final. So, you know, that that team's really come a long way too. They did well at the last Olympics and they continue to be solid in pretty much every event that they that they enter. So it's kind of fun to see how well the PACC teams are are doing on tour. Yeah, it's good to see. I wonder, I didn't see the game, but it, just looking at the line scores, it, it, this looks like the five rock rule kind of coming into effect, right? That uh, it's tough to it's tough to go full defensive with the, with the five rock mm-hmm. rule. That's why it's there. And I, I, I think if one adjustment I've noticed, at least in the kind of competitive environment I've been playing in, is that teams... Perhaps thinking the four rock rule, oh, we're up three, we're fine. Uh, kind of continue with that mentality in a five rock. Uh, you can pretty quickly give up a two bagger or a three bagger and uh, kind of be right back in the middle of it. Like you can't really step off the gas anymore, especially especially if you don't have, you know, especially I, I wouldn't say that this is like a lower level, obviously top level of women's curling, but uh, you, you just can't ever ease up even even on the men's side i still think there's we've had a couple of like late game three three point ends that have kind of changed things up so that's actually good to see this is kind of what the five rock rules there to do but i think in this game it definitely played a played an impact where the korea had a lead but let it slip away like both in the last shot but also it looks like you know up six three giving up a couple steals along the way too so on the American side of things, the U.S. was represented by Jamie Sinclair's team, and they started two and zero. They were looking good, but then they lost their last four of the tournament to finish two and four. Kind of the turning point for them was in their third game. They were behind six to five going into the eighth with Hammer against Tracy Flurry from Canada. Both teams, it looked like, were basically playing for the shootout because Flurry, you know, peeled away the front kind of trying to force Sinclair to one and then playing for that shootout because here at the at the curling world cup uh if you're tied you do not play the full extra in you just sk- skips or whoever uh throw one rock and it's a one rock closest to the button so both teams look to kind of be playing for the shootout 
However, on her last shot, Jamie had an open hit and stick to tie and force the shootout, but she rolled out uh, on the hit and lost seven to five uh, as Tracy Flurry had one kind of sitting on the side in the 12 foot. Flurry wound up going four and two in this tournament, and both of her losses were to Korea's Kim Minji. So the Korean team also went four and two, but had a pair of wins, both uh, beat Tracy Flurry in both of their games during the double round robin. So they had the tie break and team Korea went to that final on Sunday. The surprising result from this was Anil Hasselberg starting one and three and then finishing three and three, including two wins against the Chinese team that went over. So, only one win against the other two top teams in her group, which were Fujisawa and Eve Muirhead. Uh, Eve, nice little bounce back, went four and two, had a win over Has- uh, ha- Anna Hasselberg. So after struggling at the ECCs, Eve came back and had a winning record here at the Curling World Cup. Yeah, it's good to see. So. Maybe Hasselberg having a bit of a Euros hangover and Eve perhaps starting to find form there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I will say the the Scottish teams in general, both of the teams that were there, they were the they were the best dressed teams of the Curling World Cup. I liked having. Um, I really liked the tartan. They you know they had the tartan pattern down the side of the of the navy uniforms and the 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 Mowat team wore navy pants the first game. Uh, they didn't wear them the rest of the tournament because uh, I saw on Twitter uh, one of them said that the the pants were too warm, so they ditched the they ditched the all the all navy look after after one draw, which is disappointing. I thought it looked kind of good. They almost they looked a little bit like a cricket team, but it looked really good. Speaking of Bruce Mowat, his men's team went three and three. Two of those losses were to John Schuster. Schuster wound up in the final with a five and one record in front of the home crowd, and he got a rematch against Nicholas Adine. So we got the final that we wanted in front of the Ralston, Nebraska crowd. We had a rematch of the Olympic gold medal game, Schuster went five and one, and Adine went five and one during the double round robin. An okay crowd for for that that final. We'll talk about the crowds here in a second. Uh, both Adine and Schuster started one and one. Schuster lost his very first ga- uh, first game of the tournament to the Zoe team from China, and then rattled off six consecutive wins, including one in the final against Nicholas Adine to capture gold. The final was not all that interesting to watch. The final was three to one. You had three blanked ins, two singles for Schuster, a stolen in for Schuster, and a single for Nicholas Adine in this final. So not the most exciting curling. Um, Adine was unable to take advantage of a couple of Schuster mistakes. He had he had a couple chances to force Adine in the middle of the game, but uh, just missed, and that allowed Adine to blank. Uh, the 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 big, I guess the big moment of the game came in the seventh. Uh, Adine missed a double, and was left with uh, an impossible double. That uh, Schuster had two rocks in the rings. 
Hedin chose to hit one and roll out to give up a steal of one and retain Hammer. So kept Hammer down two going into eight. Schuster forced play toward the middle, made it almost impossible for Hedin to score two and then ran him out of rocks. He made a short little in off to, to get Nick's last rock, the, the last rock he had in play out and, and clinched the gold medal. So he will also punch his ticket to Beijing in May. That's good. I mean, so you got Schuster in. You, so basically, you've got Cooey and Schuster in for sure. Correct. So you got a little. You got an interesting rematch of the the semi Olympic semifinal game set up there going on for sure. That's true. That'll yeah, that'll be fun to watch um, in the middle of the night when when that when that tournament happens in May. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. Does China get an automatic berth in the final as hosts? I believe they do. Wow. <laughs> it is what it is, man. Yeah. Hashtag grow the game. <laughs> I mean, I, I have, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a, well, I don't know. I like the fact that there's a new international kind of elite level competition, but I do have some questions about the format, which we can get to uh, mm-hmm. in a bit. So the most interesting moment of this entire tournament, and it was it was the format of the tournament deciding the way a shot was played. So it was uh, Mowat against Schuster in the second to last draw for the men, and it came in the last end. So you coming into this game, Schuster had three wins and nine points. Scotland had two wins and six points. By the time the eighth end rolled around, China had won their game. So now China and the Americans both had nine points. If you're looking at if you're if you're looking at the live standings like they do during the World Cup and and things that are going on. So at this time, the U.S. and China are tied with nine points. Scotland has six. So a win in regulation gives them the full three points. So in the eighth. Mowat trails by two with Hammer. On his last shot, he's got one kind of near the forefoot, so he's sitting shot rock. Two and three are the U.S., and they've got two rocks right in front of a second Scottish rock. So Mowat, instead of drawing for two to force the shootout, decides to play kind of a quick take out of those two U.S. rocks to try and sit three and win the game in regulation. So a couple things came into effect. One, trying to get the full three points by winning in regulation. And two, and we will talk about this ad nauseum here when we also talk about the Canada Cup, they were doing thinking time per end. So his clock was running out as he's looking at this shot. And those those three rocks that I'm talking about off to the side were kind of half covered uh, by, a, by a long corner guard. So Mowat's looking at this, looking at the clock running down, quickly has to do the math. If he goes to the shootout and he loses, he's eliminated anyway. If he goes to the shootout and he wins, then he's still two points back of Schuster and has to win his last game and hope Canada beats Schuster in the last game in order to make the final. 
So he tries to play the takeout to get three and win in regulation, which is the which is the play. Honestly, you know, you do when you're doing the math in terms of standing points. That's the play to make. So he had to play it really quick because his clock's running out. It winds up picking and wrecking on the guard. So he only takes one. Schuster wins. Schuster gets to 12 points and basically has the group locked up. So that was the most interesting thing that I saw the whole tournament was the way the tournament's format dictated the way you played that last shot. It was kind of, it was fun to see. It really stunk that, you know, the, the, the format dictated that because, you know, any other tournament, Mallet's going to draw and go to an extra end and hope to steal in an extra end to get the win. Uh, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think a, a lot of the pro teams think their reasoning is I'm playing someone who's going to shoot 85, 90%. Uh, if I have a shot for the win, I'm going to take it. It was like, a tough I, shot though. I, I, even all well, the, the classics, Dave Murdoch's like 2014, like he had an open draw to tie the game to go to an extra end against Nicodine. And he took on a raised double that, that, uh, got him into the gold medal game. And he said afterwards, like people are like, why'd you call that? Like it's, it's basically an open draw to the forefoot. That's maybe not automatic, but for Murdoch's kind of pretty straightforward versus a pretty tricky run double. And you have to stick your shooter too, to make it worthwhile. Uh, and after the game, he's like, well, he just like, I guess he said the stats were something like Nicodine uh, extra end with hammer, like wins 85, 90% of the time. And I had, I figured, I make that shot 50% of the time. So I'm going to take that shot. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if entirely it's the, the format dictating that, but certainly the time clocks mattered. And, you know, maybe, maybe the team does if they feel forced to do it. But, but I do think that a lot of the pro teams do opt to, to take the low percentage shot for the win versus, um, Versus going for the extra end. Now that, that may not make sense, kind of lower level down, but certainly for an elite team, if you're playing Nicodine or Kevin Cooey, like they've played the entire game just to have the stone with the last, like have the final stone of the game. There's a close game, and that, that's simply because they, if they can create a shot to win, regardless of what it is, they're going to take it. Does that change with Five Rock now? Is it is it easier to try and get that steal in in the extra end? I mean, personally, I think yes, uh, because, well, the steal doesn't really matter because you still have two guards, right? You always had two guards. Um, I think a lot of teams, are, well, we've seen it a couple of times where teams have basically, like Cooey did that in a slam a few weeks ago, where he basically decided I'm going to go down two and score three in the last end with yeah. Hammer, right? And that's like, yeah, that's a bonkers call in four rock. I, I can see the logic there in five rock and the logic is entirely, I want to throw the last stone, <laughs> right? Like that's basically, I'm going to get my two guards mm-hmm. and then I'm going to throw the last stone. And if I'm Kevin Cooey and if there's a shot there for three, I'm probably making it. That's, that's the, that's the calculation there. I don't, I, 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 I do not think that's a good idea if you are not in the top 20 in the order of merit standings, but <laughs> Right, but <laughs> Mu it is, Kui is, so let let them do it. I do not recommend that uh, in your Tuesday night beer league, but it's I think it's a that's like a it's a pro level strategy that that does have some logic to it. With 
most of the top Canadian teams at the Canada Cup. Canada was represented by Jason Gunligson. He only went one in five and lost his last four. They, I don't know, they kind of seemed out of sorts. And that, that that's somewhat of a new lineup for them. They've they've added um, Denny Newfeld to, to that lineup. And this is probably Gunner's first time representing Canada at, at this level. And didn't quite represent them the way that Tracy Fleury did, but I mean, he, he did have some tough losses. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I, I would have expected uh, a slightly better, I would have expected a better show. Like I, I wasn't, they weren't a pick of mine to make the, the final, but yeah, bottom of the table is a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the two things that I want to talk about with, this event overall is the coverage and the attendance from a coverage standpoint. You know, we talked about this event and what might happen with it a lot when we sat down with miles McNutt to talk about TV coverage in general in the States for, for curling. And for this event, we basically got exactly what we asked for. We got, live curling coverage on NBC Sports Network, which has really good distribution for three consecutive nights, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night at 830. You had live curling on NBCSN, which is more than I could have ever asked for. So that was great. And then you had a bunch of other games. I believe you had 11 other games, including the three finals that were shown or I think it was I think it was a total of 13 games. So 10 games shown live on Olympic Channel, which is a little tougher to get, but some people still have still have it as a part of their cable package. So you had 10 other games that were on Olympic Channel. It was it was pretty fun to watch. I got to watch most of it. Most uh, I missed a lot of the early draws while I was at work and tried to watch those just to have an idea of, of how the broadcasts were going uh, when I when I got home in the evening. It was a lot of fun to watch. There were a couple things that we talked about in that episode with with Miles that kind of drive us insane. When on on Thursday night on e, on NBCSN you had live John Schuster versus Jason Gunligson, and they were they were kind of promoting this as the U.S. versus Canada. I mean, if you put U.S. and Canada on facing each other in an event on ice, you might get a little bit of, a, of, of an audience. I know in, you know, we, we promote that rivalry a lot in hockey and that we're trying to promote that, it appears, in, in curling as well. So that game was on NBCSN and it was a lot of the same stuff that we see during curling night in America, which was kind of inferior. That was the one really infuriating thing to me was they had their script of here's all of our anecdotes talking about team Schuster winning gold, talking about they did this and that and the other after they won gold, all these experiences that they got to have. And there wasn't a lot of talk about strategy, which that part snunk. And then you watch some of the other games on Olympic Channel, and all of this was done with Jason Knapp and Kevin Martin calling the games. 
Uh, and that was, that was the crew that NBC had for the Olympics as well. So they were the ones calling the games. I don't know. It seemed like they didn't have a really good rapport during that first Schuster game. There was a lot of Kevin Martin when he did insert himself with some strategy talk. You know, he he ended a lot of his comments with so, you know, he's, he's going to play this shot in so... And that was followed by followed by silence before Jason Knapp queued up his next uh, Schuster anecdote. So that was, I mean, that was the infuriating thing to me. But then you watch them doing the mixed doubles game and doing the Jamie Sinclair games against Tracy Flurry, and it was a lot better broadcast. It was what the the Schuster game should have been, which was, yeah, acknowledging what has happened in the past with this team, but also really focusing on what's going on in the game and explaining to us, you know, giving us the why, why are these shots being played? Why are, why are the teams trying to position their rocks the way that they are? So we didn't get a lot of that in the Schuster games, but in the other games we did. So so that almost makes the way that they covered the Schuster games even more infuriating. Like we know that you can do this. We know you two can work well as a team and cover a curling match, you know? So that's obviously a decision that Knapp made to, to turn into a Schuster, it like it may whatever, not be it, that could have been a a production decision. Okay, yeah, you don't you don't know if it's an announcer or if it's the producer. That's true. It's a bit. I, I, it, if I'm knowing play by play guys the way that I do, they you know they they would rather call what's going on. You know you know you have other things going on outside of the current game that you need to talk about, and those are your talking points when you have a lull or you have a blank end. But you know they they want to call what's in front of them. So I wonder if that was a production decision because it was weird because the other you know the other games were called you know like they were curling games though. What what I did like and what they really improved on was they gave you context of the games and why these games were important. And they showed, you know, in the in the first part of of ends, they would show, okay, this is happening on one of the other sheets. This is happening on this sheet. Here's why these games are important. They gave you context for the event as a whole and what the teams were playing for. That was something that maybe was lacking from previous. NBC coverage. So it was fun in, in that aspect, it was just like watching TSN. They would give you quick updates on what's going on in the other sheets and why they matter and what's going in, what needs to happen for X, Y, and Z to happen for the rest of the event. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I, a, a curling tournament with like multiple games going on is probably a weird thing for NBC sports to cover. Right, mm-hmm. like outside of the Olympics, they don't really do that. Uh, and it, there's a lot of nuances that TSN has basically had 30 years to figure out, which uh, NBCSN is obviously figuring out on the fly. Right. Plus, um, you know, it's not it's not a it's not a trivial thing that you have play by play now, so doesn't really know the game that well. Right. So yeah. he's got to kind of figure out the nuance of the game too. Yeah, and that's the other thing. And like I, I'm hypercritical of this, and that's because I do watch a lot of the TSN coverage that you get through ESPN three. So I realize that I probably ask for more than most people do. 
Yeah. And I'm sure I ask for more than NBC does. So Jason Knapp, honestly, does a really good job. And we do not have a more capable or better qualified curling play-by-play guy in America than we do with Jason Knapp. And he's, you can tell that his, his knowledge is expanding. You, you listen to him during Curling Night in America and you listen to him during the Curling World Cup and he's figuring out this game. And he's kind of getting to the point where he can set up Kevin Martin for, you know, giving us a point on, on why certain shots are being played. So it is getting better. Um, you know, curling coverage in this country is never going to be what it is in Canada, but you know, it, 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 it's light years better. It's got a ways to go because another, the infuriating, another infuriating thing was when it got to the Schuster Adeen game, you know, I watched, I watched the mixed doubles uh, final and watched the women's final and they were called very well. And they were talking strategy between the two of them. And then the Schuster Dean game happens and they went right back to, I mean, to the point where it was almost verbatim, the same script from the Schuster Gunner game of talking about um, previous things that the team had done and what they did after the Olympics. And I will say that game was being replayed, tape delayed on NBC Sports Network later that night. So that may have played into it. But yeah, that, I mean, that was that was mind boggling to me that we got a lot of the same script from, from previously. Now the game didn't help three to one final did not help them. And a lot of blank ends did not help them. So maybe you can kind of blame it on the game. Uh, Maybe a bit. I also just wonder if it's like, you just don't have that. Like we said with this in the miles McNutt episode, right? Like Vic router, his skill is he knows when to play dumb. Mm-hmm. Right, like he he knows the game really well. He, he curls himself, and he's been calling curling for for years. But he knows exactly when to ask the dumb question to Russ and Cheryl that the casual viewer is asking, and he obviously knows the answer to it. But he's also like he knows how to pull Russ Howard back from like you know PhD level curling strategy to you know why are we putting up a corner guard when we have hammer kind of question, yeah. right? Like, and that's a there's a weird skill that you have to actually know the game really well in order to know how to ask the dumb question that's necessary for the casual viewer. And that's, that's to me is what, what Vic's kind of superpower is. He also, I think his, the, the thing that he does better than anyone on this planet when it comes to curling coverage is when you, you know, you're, you're letting the third and the skip talk about a shot and then you hear them say, okay, we're going to, they decide on the draw. And Vic's, Vic's superpower to me is once they decide on the draw, his next comment is, Russ, would you ever think of peeling here mm-hmm. and letting Russ give the devil's advocate of why they've chosen the draw over whatever the other shot could have been? Yeah. Yeah. He's got, it's like he, he, he knows, it's like I said, he knows it's a kind of a dumb question, but he's, he's doing it to kind of pull out the logic out of Russ. Yep. Right. Yep. And I th- honestly, I think, I've seen and I've I've heard enough Jason Knapp calling curling that I I think that he can get somewhere close to there. So I I'm I'm not I'm not as down on NBC's curling coverage as I was going into this event. They they've shown that they have the ability to 
produce a game broadcast or yeah, produce a match broadcast that is that that can both cater to the curling fan and the people that are tuning in for the first time. They they have that ability now. They just they need to do it whenever. They need to they, they need to show that they that they're they're capable of doing it when John Schuster's playing because they've shown that they're capable of doing it when he's not playing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's good. I think. Uh, well, I, I mean, it's still good. I, I'm curious to see what the ratings are going to be, and I'm curious with Schuster now in the final if that event gets good coverage as well. Mm-hmm. And something that was brought to my attention uh, so Knapp and Martin were not in Ralston and this this happens a lot with the Olympics and it happens a lot with uh, international soccer is you'll take the feed that's being produced uh, I think it happens a lot with Champions League too it actually happens in Quebec on the French version of TSN RDS the RDS Réseau des Sports, they uh, they also do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But they they pulled the WCF feed, and then you had Knapp and Martin elsewhere calling the game. This was brought to my attention by a guy named uh, Dave Trout on on Twitter, who I guess helped out with the broadcast. He wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. You know, they they're, they're calling a game that's on a TV screen in front of them instead of you know being able to take in the the atmosphere and speaking of the atmosphere there was a little bit there for the final when Schuster and Nadine played it was a you know probably lower than I expected crowd and then you had in another okay crowd probably the the biggest that they had for Schuster's final game which was played at 4 p.m. local time on Saturday against Canada and Jason Gunlickson. But other than that, this was kind of poorly attended. And the reason that it was surprising to me was how well Omaha accepted the Olympic trials last year. Now, this was this was a different arena. This was in Ralston, which is it's not downtown and it's not in the, you know, well-to-do suburbs of Omaha. It's kind of between those two. I don't know if that had something to do with it. You know, you're the people who live downtown probably aren't going to go to Ralston. And the previous event was held at the university of Nebraska, Omaha's new arena. But from what I read going into the Olympic trials last year, they sold over a thousand all session passes for the trials before the event. And they were talking on Omaha TV about how it was the highest attended trials they had and how well it had done. So they've given this event to Omaha. And something else that was kind of brought to my attention was Omaha, I guess, has right of first refusal for this same event for the next three years as well. So I'm hoping that it I'm I'm hoping that this event stays in Omaha and they figure out how to how to market it and how to get people in the door. But other than a couple of draws. It was extremely poorly attended. Now, a couple people told me that the the actual attendance was better than it looked on TV, but you had it looked very bad uh, on TV. Did they do 
anything special at the venue? Did they create like a patch or did they uh, like do any of that stuff? Like what they're doing, like the what's the what's the name of the Pinties? Whatever that weird ass Pinties pub is, which is like you know, Pinties pub, yeah. Basically, get, uh, get drunk down at the end of the sheet and having a party. That's like, do they do any of that at all, or no? No, and that that appears to be one of the problems. So, look, I, I, I I'm I'm not going to sit here and play armchair marketer uh, because I've I've dealt with me before. I've dealt with someone who is really into an event and is wondering why more tickets weren't sold. You know, I, I was in sports ticket sales and live event ticket sales for about a decade. And one of the events that we had, we had this skating event that just, we could not for the life of us sell a ticket to the stupid event. And so the event happens. And then afterward, I've got someone who's a huge skating fan asking me, you know, why weren't more people at this event? Why didn't you do this, that, and the other to, to get people to this event? And our answer was, well, we did. It was just, no one was interested in buying a ticket to this event. So I don't know. It, it, it was disappointing simply because of how well Omaha did last year hosting the trials, hopefully for the next few years, you know, they've, hopefully they've kind of educated the, the, the people around Omaha, what this event is, uh, and they can, they can get more buy into it. The only thing that I was really surprised at was it did not look like there was a effort made to paper the house for those, for those Thursday and Friday night games on NBCSN. Cause a lot of times when you know that, when you know you haven't sold any tickets and you know it's going to look bad on TV and you know it's going to you know it's going to look like you didn't sell any tickets at that event you'll reach out to local you know local agencies local organizations and you'll paper the you'll paper the house which means that you're giving out free tickets to these organizations to come and fill the seats and make it look better um, one of the easiest things you can do is go to the USO. The USO is always willing to take tickets. And that was my number one call anytime I had to paper a house because the USO will just take as many tickets as you'll give them <laughs> uh, and, and get people to your events. So they didn't do that. I, I mean, I think the obvious explanation for why is that, A, this is a new event without much cachet. I'm mm-hmm. sure those thousand all session passes uh, – I bet you a good 50, 60% of them were from like the Twin Cities curling community where it's, you know, it's not an unreasonable drive, the Mm -hmm. Twin Cities to to Omaha. And they want to go watch the trials and see uh, like the big name teams qualify for the Olympics. So without the Olympic angle, it's a hard sell. It's a new event, which is a hard sell. And I don't think it, I, I don't think the World Cup knows what it wants to be yet. Right. It's oh, it has no clue. It's a, it's it's still a weird event. Like like some of the things I like, I like the shootout format a lot. I like the fact mm-hmm. that it's national teams. I I really hate the double round robin. I don't see why you got to watch. You know, I do too. See teams play each other twice. I wish there was a bit more of a traditional playoff structure, at least a semifinal and a final. Uh, and I'd like to see like more teams in it. Like the lack of Swiss women's teams, strange to me. Um, 
Yeah, a bunch of stuff, right? They, I I still think it's. I, I hope they don't. I hope they don't kill the event, but they've got to figure out a way to make it distinct from just world slams, if you will. Right? It's gotta. It's gotta have something else to it. And I'll just. I'll say this before we move on to the next thing about this event. Um, it from from what I could tell, the Omaha Sports Commission did a good job of trying to get out into the community and and sell this event. They. Based off their Twitter, they they went to the Children's Museum in Omaha and set up some floor curling. They went to um, uh, the junior the junior hockey team that plays in the same arena. The, you know, they set up booths there. I don't know what their staff looks like. I don't know what how many people were in charge of trying to sell tickets to this event. But when you, when you have a multiple day event, I do know from experience that you know it. It takes a couple of people who one of their main jobs is to try and sell group tickets and try to get this event out in front of the community. So I don't know. I don't know who was in charge of the budget. I don't know where the budget was coming from. I don't know how much of an effort should have been made by the people pumping money into this event uh, to get the word out about it. So, you know, if you like, let's say you're the Omaha sports commission and you're not going to make a lot of money off of the ticket sales and the WCF is going to get all that money. You know, you're not going to spend a big budget on getting ticket sales. That budget has to come from the WCF. If the WCF is getting the money for the tickets and I don't know any of this, I don't know who's, you know, I imagine the WCF is getting a pretty good, pretty good take on the ticket sales, but you know, it, who, whoever's in charge, you know, there has to be, there has to be manpower and there has to be budget. So I don't know who was responsible for that. You know, it could be, it could be the WCF's fault that no one was in that building. It could be any number of people's fault. You know, who knows, who knows really who was in charge here. And I can't imagine that it's going to be that honestly, I can't imagine it's going to be that much better. In fact, it may be worse uh, attendance wise when this event plays its third leg, which is January 30th through February 3rd in Jönköping, Sweden. That's the European leg of this event. The next leg of this event, it's kind of interesting. It was going to, it's in the middle of provincial playdowns in Canada. So that's why originally Curling Canada announced that the two teams going to Jönköping were Jennifer Jones and Brad Gushu, who are the reigning team candidates for the Scotties and Briar. And it just makes sense that since they don't have to go play in provincials, this is a chance to go and play some high quality teams as a warm up before the Scotties and Briar when they're going to be team Canada in those events. So that all made sense. However, a couple of weeks ago, TSN announced that it's bringing back the TSN All-Star Skins game. And it's going to be held February 1st through 3rd in Banff, which is during the next leg of the Curling World Cup. And Jones and Gushu were listed among the teams playing in the Skins game. So now we have no idea who's going to be representing Canada in Yonkoping. Um Hell, it could be Gunner again because you look at the 
you look at you look at the schedule and you look at who's going to the skins game. On the men's side, Gushu, Botcher, Cooey, and Carruthers are going to the skins game. And on the women's side, Anderson, Scheidegger, Flurry, and Jones. Jacobs isn't going to be there because he's going to be playing in his tankard. Holman isn't going to be be there because she's playing in her provincial Scotties in Ontario. That doesn't leave a whole lot of top teams left to go represent Canada uh, in Sweden during this event. So it's Alberta and Manitoba. I, I don't know which provinces have their tanker play down that weekend, right? Um, uh, it's the only two big ones are Northern Ontario and Ontario. Okay, so that, Glenn that same, Howard's that out. Same weekend. Glenn Howard's out. Well, let's go to yep. the CTRS standings, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and see who's <laughs> I mean it'll be whoever so Cooey Carruthers oh, this is the old ones stupid Google uh, let's see on the women's side so Einerson skins game Holman playdowns Jones skins game Darcy Robertson <laughs> there you go <laughs> she could go could be Tracy Fleury is Al- no Tracy Fleury's playing in the skins game okay is Chelsea Carey not scheduled for the skins game. Okay, it might be Chelsea Carey. That's probably Canada's best. Um, Casey Scheidegger. It's probably Scheidegger's in the skins game. Yeah, so it's probably Chelsea Carey. And then yeah, let me find. That's a solid representative. Yeah, let's figure out the men's side. Where's the men's CTRS? Uh, Curling Canada's webpage for the for the record is not that accessible. But that's another rant for another pod. <laughs> <laughs> So forget about Jacobs, forget about right. John Epping, Epping, forget about Glenn Cooney, Howard. Botcher, Dunstone, Dunny. It's going to be Dunny. Dunny. <laughs> He's number right. four. Send Dunny. That, that'll be fun. He may not win, but so he'll make predict- a bunch of trick shots. It'll be good. So we're predicting <laughs> uh, Kerry and Dunstone to represent Canada uh, in, right. in Sweden for that yeah. event. After calling, All right. after calling the Bruce Mullet. To the thing, this is this is a bit more to the limb, but I'm going Chelsea Carey, Matt Dunstone will be the Team Canada reps. All right, what are the? I'll I'll agree with you on Carey, but who are what's what's another option on the men's side? Uh, well, then you go down pretty far. Then it's Braden Calvert is number nine. Then Gunlickson okay, at eleven. Dun- okay, it's going to be Kurt Myers at right. twelve. So, uh, eh, maybe the Myers team, but I think so. Then there's also either way, either way, it's a either way, it's a Saskatchewan representative going to Sweden. Yeah, and then are they going to roll Johnny right. Mo out again for the uh, <laughs> for the mixed doubles? <laughs> Might as well. Or they could have like Johnny Mo put together team with like of like him, Mark Kennedy, who else is on the bench right now? Wozniak. <laughs> yeah. The team team took a step back. Yeah, team took a step back. <laughs> Throw them <laughs> together and drop them in there. That would be all right. Actually, that's not a bad. J- that's JM, not a bad option. JM Johnny Mo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jean yeah Jean Michel Menard skipping Johnny Mo at third. Mark Kennedy, Mark Kennedy, and then Kennedy and Wozniak. Yeah, actually, I love. Oh, that would be that would be a great team. If you if you happen to be with Curling Canada, uh, I think that this this is the team that you should be sending to to Sweden. Um, so what what do we make of this? Uh, you, so Curling Canada appears to be less than less than enthused about the Curling World Cup, um, and I can't say that I blame them. According to Curling Zone, the WCF is not covering any of the travel costs for this tournament. Um, 
so that that may explain curling Canada's uh, curling Canada not being all in on on the World Cup. Um, the Canada Cup World Cup crossover that we had this week was apparently due to an arena availability issue, according to the CBC's Devin Hero, and he said it won't be a problem in the future. But the skins game being scheduled at the same time. I mean, I realize a lot of that is TSN, but you know, the you you really need Canada to buy into this event for it to to matter in the future, right? Or counter theory. They already have Kui and Holman in the Curling World Cup. They don't want Canada stacking the Curling World Cup by winning all the events. So they've already got marquee so the, Canadian So the, the World Cup is doing this? Yeah. Like, I'm not sure if they're doing <laughs> it, but it's like they've already got three Canadian teams in the final. Do you want it all Canadian teams versus well, now China? They're, now they're guaranteed, they're guaranteed not to since Canada got shut out on this. Yeah, but now you've so got even, now you've got Shusti in, and now you've got what? You've got Shusti, you've got Korea in, you've got China in. Uh, so if I'm, Japan. if I'm TV producer for curling world cup, I want a Dean and Hasselberg in there. I want, uh, you know, maybe some Scottish representation. It's, it's not, um, so it goes off, it goes off point. So those teams are probably going to get in anyway. Yeah. But you, you don't want like, um, you don't, basically you don't want Canada running the table, right? But they're, they're not now. They are, Canada, but- so, so the way, the way they set up, the way they set up the rules was, if you win two legs, you still only get one spot. Yeah. The only way that you get multiple spots is if you won all three legs, and then you would get three spots. It was like it's it's all or nothing. Yeah. So now, now that Canada has been shut out, now even if Canada runs the table in Sweden, they're still only getting one spot in Beijing. Yes, but look, look, look who Canada said. It's like we sent Kui, he wins. Then we sent Gunner, he doesn't win. We haven't sent Gushu. We haven't sent Botcher. We haven't sent like any of the power teams. And we've only sent, we haven't sent Jones. It's like no Einerson. It's like, it's not, uh, they're, Canada curling's not trying to win it. I think they want a little bit of Canadian flavor, whatever. They definitely want Schusty in there for the American money. But then you want some good Euro teams. You want some good Asian teams, right? So, if I'm producing the event, I'm pretty happy that Korea's got got in there, or Japan got in there, and Korea's hosting good yeah. results. China's locked in. Uh, yeah, Sun Shusti's in. So I think if they're kind of trying to manipulate it for like an interesting final, then you've got some good quality teams in there. We've seen half of this year's Curling World Cup tournament. What do you think of this event? I think it needs to be fixed so i know i know what i would i know what i would do to fix it let's see what do you, what would you do? all right i'm going back to your like idea from back in the summer where i think it should be something like davis cup where somehow the results of the men's women's and mixed doubles results for that country all add up to something so so it's like a, a bread so my idea was bracket format like you start with you know, Canada versus Scotland and the U.S. versus um, versus Japan, and then the winners play something along those lines. That was my idea. Yeah, I kind of. But you I play like that. Yeah, the the doubles games, the women's games, and the men's games are all worth points, and you try to 
you try to advance in the bracket as a country. That was my yeah, idea. something like that. Now that that would be great. I think I think the problem is it's not it doesn't have enough big name teams to be a slam, so it's not quite slam level. And I think if the WCF has an advantage, it's the countries, right? Like the big advantage WCF mm-hmm. has is you're cheering for countries, not for teams. And I actually mm-hmm. think that's more engaging for the casual fan, right? You just you cheer for I your country. Too. So I think... Well, the, the, the casual fan probably outside of Canada. Yeah, right? Well, even in Canada. I think I think Canadians, they only care if, if Canadians do well. So I think they're, everyone, the, Canadian, the Canadian take is going to be... You know, all our good players were playing in Estevan or whatever this weekend, so uh, we don't care, <laughs> right? That's going to be the Correct. arrogant Canadian take. So, um, but I think that the way you get the buy-in back in, the other thing is they, they're trying to use this to sell mixed doubles, which I like, but I think the way you make you sell mixed doubles is by having the mixed doubles be part of that team component. So it's, yeah, you, you play the three games, and it's you you win the points, right? So I guess you win a point per game or whatever. And if you win two to one, then you you win that series and you get a bonus point or something. Whether it's bracket format, which I like, I'm not sure how practical that is to send an entire delegation to go play one game, right? Which is what a bracket format would entail. Well, my idea was it's a it's a bracket, but you have guaranteed basically you're playing a bracket style tournament at each of your stops and then how you do in each of this kind of, kind of like, I guess it would be similar to the, the rugby seven series that they do where each tournament is it's each stop is its own tournament. And then for the grand, you earn points to get into the grand final. Yeah, I would do that. So I, what I would do, if I were doing it, I would do, uh, Hey, I'm not sure how many teams I'd have in there, but say like five or six countries with their teams and I don't know if you have all the games simultaneously, but you'd basically do a round robin of countries playing those three matches. Like the staging and the logistics is a different matter, but you'd have, let's say just for a second, you have six countries, you play five games, top team gets right into the final and second and third playoff in a final for, um, for like the, the other spot. And then you qualify six for the final and do a similar thing there. That's how I'd stage it. Okay. And then you're getting you're getting like 18 countries in there. Fine. They're, you know, you're gonna have a couple kind of on the cusp that aren't gonna do all that well, but you're you're gonna have in each one kind of some compelling teams, and you do it by world rankings. And that's how you set up your three pools. And then you're qualifying out of that to some kind of final tournament. Okay, that's a lot to process. Um <laughs> All right, so I was thinking about it this morning, and I think I fixed this tournament. All right. Go from eight teams to 10 per um, per event. So 10 women's teams, 10 men's teams, 10 mixed doubles teams. That gets you all these – I mean, that's that's the number of teams that are, you know, good – in in the in the curling world right now, it at least it at least gets the Swiss women into the event. Um, so ten countries, the ten countries are all the same in all three in all three disciplines in men's, women's, and doubles. And instead of doing a double round robin, you just play a single round, two pools of five, single round robin, four game guarantee. You get this event done in four days max. Um, you don't have to, you know, you 
it's basically a long weekend for people to go to these events. Um, if you want to do a five game guarantee, then you have, instead of just doing one verse one on, on Sunday, then you do one verse two, two verse one, verse one, two verse two, three verse three, four verse four, just for order of merit points, basically, or seating for the next tournament or whatever. But it, it gets it done over, it gets it over with quick and, and it includes more countries and you don't get the stupid double round Robin, which I still don't get. Yeah. I don't like the round, double round Robin. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. So the one knock on that is I don't know how many people are going to fly internationally for a four game guarantee. If you have to self fund, like I, I think like a team, like I, I think a team like a Gushu, if they get an invite, they may say, you know, this is not worth our time or our money. And that, that that's okay. probably the problem with that. I that's, that's, But you are, you are cutting down on travel costs because you're making it, you're eliminating at the very least in it one entire day off of the current format. Cause if the WCF is just going to not offer to spend any money to bring these teams in at the very least, make it a short week, make it basically a cash spiel. Yeah, I mean, maybe the the. I think to me the problem with that is that then it's not. Here's the other thing: it may be it may be only a four or five game guarantee, but you're getting in a lot of a lot of decent games. I mean, you're not playing. You know, half your games aren't going to be against nobodies. You're going to have maybe one gimme game the whole week, and the rest of your week is going to be against teams that are pretty good in the order of merit that you're going to get a decent number of points for beating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe. I think I think the problem is that that this turns it into another slam, and actually a slam light, right? Because you're not you're qualifying based off country, not based off order of merit standing. So it's going to be it won't have as much of a strength of field multiplier as a slam. Mm-hmm. And I mean, part of it's what does the WCF want out of this? And I, I really think the country angle. Money. Well, if they want the, they want they want money. It's the country <laughs> angle, right? So it's got to be something different yeah. than the slams. It can't just be world slams or slam light. And that's I think part of the problem. The double round robin's weird, and it doesn't really build anything. It's kind of like, I guess you get a bit of drama at the end of the round robin games for who's going to grab the spot. And then you're right into a final. It's kind of like there's there's a nice progression in like the Canada Cup where it's, you know, round robin, tiebreakers, playoff, final, right? It's it's kind of like it's a it's a winnowing that kind of leads to something big. Whereas this kind of feels like double round robin, they've already played that team. Do we want to see a re- rematch? I'm, I'm not that interested in that. And then uh, then you're right into a final. It doesn't just doesn't flow. But then I think if you do a full round robin, I think you're making the event too long and you're you're stuck with that same problem of why waste your money to to go play in this event. Yeah. Why why, why you're making the event way too long and making teams spend more money than they're probably willing to spend to go participate. Yeah, which is why I think the country angle's key cuz then you got if you can maybe tie in an incentive yep. to countries, maybe use it partially to qualify for the world championships or something, but just figure out a way to make it country-based. So the national associations have a reason to care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're close to making this a good event. I think if they just come up with a couple of tweaks, then I think that it's going to be really solid in the future. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not as down on this event as a lot of people are. It was, I don't know. It was fun to watch. It was good. And it got, uh, 
it got coverage in the States, which I think was the whole purpose of creating this event when you're the WCF is to try and get, try and get games on TV in the USA and in China. I think that was the whole purpose of coming up with, with this format and the, the event in Ralston did that. It got, it got curling on live television in the United States. So in that case, mission accomplished, but I did a couple of tweaks here and there. And I think that, that it'll be good. One of the things that I did like, which a lot of people did not, and we saw it in the next event we're going to talk about is thinking time per end. And it, uh, thinking time per end wound up playing a very big part, uh, in the men's final at the Canada cup. First, the women's side in the final, it was team Jennifer Jones, who went five and two in the round robin facing off against team Carrie Anderson, who finished the round robin at six and one. Jones beat Homan eight to four in the semifinal in a game that Jones kind of controlled throughout. In the final, Jones again really had control of the game most of the game, but Anderson was able to, to play her a little closer. Uh, so the game was tied at five, and then in the ninth, Jones uh, made the shot of the t- made really the shot of the week, made a raise uh, double for three to take a five three lead going into ten, and then that was pretty much it. So another Canada Cup title for Jennifer Jones. Uh, the other team that made the the playoff was uh, Rachel Holman. They had a a solid week. They but. Rachel's team wasn't quite on, you know, God mode that they every now and then will go into, you know, when, when Homan's really on the, the tournament is decided really probably on uh, Wednesday or Thursday, you know, when Rachel's on, you know, and midway through the week, you know, who's going to win the tournament. And it wasn't that way. So she wound up losing in the semifinal. Um, Casey Scheidegger had a really solid week. She finished four and three, finished uh, and beat Rachel Homan in the round robin, but finished one game out of a tiebreaker. The only really disappointing team was the Chelsea Carey team. She went two and five. Uh, she had wins over Allie Flaxey and Casey Scheidegger. Uh, so first really big, uh, big money tournament Um in Canada and Jennifer Jones uh, captures captures another title. Yeah, I mean, well, I basically said it'll be Jones and Holman and I guess Einerson squeaking in there is not super surprising. Uh, so no, they've had a great start to the season. Yeah, they've had exactly. Yeah, I think they they've kind of killed the too many skips story pretty early, and uh, I mean, yeah, I'll be curious to see how far they go. Is this a team that? Uh, can knock off Jones and Holman because it's basically been a two-team kind of race in Canada, at least for the last cycle and a little bit before Mm -hmm. that too. So it would be nice to have another team that can come in and mix that up a bit, break up the Jones versus Holman rivalry. So, so I I think Einerson's still not quite there. They, they don't, she, she, Einerson is a skip, doesn't really have the signature win yet. And uh, this is a new team. And actually, in a certain sense, Val Sweeting was kind of, you know, in the last quad, a bit of, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride kind of thing, like losing a lot of tough, tough finals. But uh, they've got all the skills. So if they can put it together and win a Scotties or win Canada Cup, uh, they could they could certainly be, you know, one of the co-favorites uh, for the Roar of the Rings, uh, you know, three years from now. Yeah, I think. 
I think right now it's, you know, we're looking more than three years ahead, but right now it's a three-team race. I think, I think the carry team will improve, and it'll be interesting to see if if the Scheidegger team can can make that a a five-team race for for the Olympics on the women's side in Canada. But I, based on how they've played. Yeah, they got beat in the final. Based on how they've played on tour and how they played in the round robin this week, I'd I'd consider the Anderson team, you know, that that third team that we're talking about for for Scotties and down the road, Roar of the Ring. Yeah, I think they're. I think I got. I guess I'm kind of. I don't know. I I kind of like until a team until I see a team do it in a big big event and like win a big final. Uh, you know. Yeah, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I discount them, but they're just they're just not of that tier, right? It's like Holman and Jones have so much hardware between them. It's like Einerson doesn't have like you know any of the a, a single one big piece of hardware, right? At least at least Chelsea Carey's got a Scotty's, right? And and a, a Roar of the Rings final. So I think until I see Einerson step up on a Scotty's final and, and win something big, which I think I wouldn't be surprised if she does them the next year or two, but. Until I see that team do it, I'm not quite ready to put her in the the Jones Holman tier yet. But probably pulling ahead from like the Scheidegers and in the Flaxies and those other teams, I think are good, but not quite kind of tier Holman Jones tier yet. Mm-hmm. So, moving on to probably the the event that you've waited uh, an hour and twenty minutes for us to talk about the men's final was Team Brad Jacobs, who went 5-1 and one in the round robin, against Team Kevin Cooey, who went 4-2 and two in the round robin. Uh, Jacobs was great in this event. He started 5-0, and oh, uh, lost, uh, lost his last draw, I believe, to Brendan Botcher, um, you know, after he had already clinched a spot in the final. Cooey needed to win a tiebreaker against Botcher and then had a pretty epic comeback in the semifinal against Brad Gushu to reach this final. Uh, Cooey trailed in that game uh, five to one after six. And then in the last end, Gushu had an in-off double for the win and he, the, you know, his shooter kind of rolled just under uh, the Cooey stone um, that would have made the double for the win. But just missed that, so that put Cooey and Jacobs into the final. Solid curling on both sides at the beginning. Uh, Jacobs was mostly in control. He got an early deuce, stayed in control, and then we got to the fifth end. So, to set this up, <laughs> because this was this was the moment that everyone's talking about from this last week. Um, Cooey had. Uh, Cooey had hammer before his first shot. He's looking at a bunch of guards in front of the house and he's looking on the side of the forefoot. Uh, his shot is shot stone and he's got a Jacob's rock right above it and a Jacob's rock right under it. And they're looking at all kinds of very low percentage shots, including a crazy in off. They take a timeout. The time clock starts running again Cooey finally decides that he's going to play kind of a, you know, basically a heavy draw to kind of shake things up there uh, in the forefoot. So as he starts to slide back down to the hack, their clock has been running again, and they get down to 11 seconds. 
And with 11 seconds left, uh, I think it was BJ Newfeld calls timeout. The clock keeps running. Cooey realizes it when he gets down to the hack. And with two seconds left, Cooey looks at the umpire and yells timeout. So the clock stops with two seconds left. Really, it should have stopped with 11. And that's going to come in key here. So Cooey's uh, kind of upweight, heavy draw goes straight through. So leaves the house exactly the way it was before. And he's got two seconds left on his clock. And the whole time uh, that this is happening, Vic even Vic is even saying as they're as they're looking at these shots, Vic is saying, you know, they're going to be in, in trouble with time. Uh, Cheryl says, you know, this is where this team really misses Mark Kennedy because he'd be the one encouraging them to just pick a shot and go with it. So all this happens. Cooey's shot goes through the house. What will be lost to history is Brad Jacobs uh, makes the only mistake that he made all week. He looks at the, you know, he, his rock is guarding what's going on in the forefoot. Instead of just leaving it, he decides to play this run back to kind of, you know, break open, um, break open the forefoot and possibly get a steal. So plays a run back. It misses. So it clears the front of the house, leaves Cooey still shot stone and jostles his rocks in the forefoot to where now Cooey has an open draw to the four to get his deuce. Cooey gets in the hack. They call their 32nd timeout, which they, which they called like the skips extension or something like that. He calls his little 32nd timeout, lines up his shot, and the clock expires before he gets his shot off. What happened next uh, was kind of controversial. So when Cooey's getting in the hack and setting up his shot, you see an official on the side down at the house that he's aiming for, looking at his watch with his hand up. So then the camera shows Cooey. You see Cooey get ready. You see Cooey's clock at zero when he releases his rock. It slides to back eight to only give one. And that's when things kind of went haywire. Uh, that And uh, I kind of captured the audio of it, which we'll play right now. You will hear Ben Hebert talking to an official and then Ben Hebert uh, talking to Mark Kennedy. And uh, Ben uses some words that would cause us to get an explicit rating on this podcast. So I went through and I replaced those words with the word waffles. So enjoy Ben Hebert, Mark Kennedy, and one of the officials discussing what happened. Hey, what's going on? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Did you come out to tell them that rock was coming off? Sir, what the... Waffles. We we called the time, you guys. Down there. Damn it. Your 30 seconds ran out before you... No, no. We had 11... Guys, we had 11 on the clock. Listen, we we make that shot if you don't run out here. And the clock didn't go to zero. We talked to the guy. the clock. Holy... Waffles. (laughs) Guys, Mark, Mark, listen. I know you guys are... Waffles. Why are you guys even out here? City official, we have 11 plus our 30. 
He goes, yeah. I said, well, if the clock's not running, can you tell us how much time we have? He goes, we have lots of time. We throw our drop. Here, here's the only reason I say that. So he gets his one as they... Oh, no, no, we didn't. Call Mark, we called last shot, Mark. Mark, we called two timeouts no, left. No, no, no. So that was a full timeout. You can't call your clock stop on your first drop. On your first drop. On your last one. We called two timeouts. What does this have to do with me? At the end of the day, the shot's back in. I don't know what do you want us to give you a deuce? So, don't want you to give me a Waffles. Okay. Koozie, Kooey is, is just out, walking away. We're sweeping it. All right, so that's a lot to take in. It, it, Jonathan, in my opinion, the officials did make a mistake. The The timeout was called with with 11 seconds on, on the clock. They allowed the clock to, to tick down to two. They had a discussion with the official saying the clock should be at 11. We have our 30 second. We have our 30 second extension and the officials telling him, yeah, you have a lot of time to, to play your shot. And so I, it, it sounds like there was miscommunication between some of the officials on how long they had to play their shot and had to come in and, and, and the official came in in the middle of the shot and told them that the rock was being pulled. So, Jonathan, you've been involved in a lot of these tournaments, and you know how these um, these the the timekeeping works. What could have been done? Like, why didn't they just reset the clock to eleven seconds? All right. So there's a lot of stuff that's interesting about this. So unless Curling Canada has different software with the new time system, uh, the first thing to know is that the time clock software that's used, at least the WCF package and the one I used when I was in the US, like as a timekeeper, if you make a mistake as a timekeeper, the normal practice is to simply run clock in the next end to correct for that mistake. So if the timekeeper screwed up and cost the team 30 seconds, what they do is they, they can't move the clock back up so what they say is next they end can't? give you no they can't so why i don't know the software is proprietary and not that good to be honest having used it um so they the, the normal practice is in the next end you just run the 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 time the head timekeeper will say okay we'll just give you 30 seconds next end and they'll kind of run a stopwatch and then start the clock back up later to make up for the lost time uh, the first thing to know is that having both coached and been a timekeeper is timekeeping mistakes happen a lot. I've learned as a coach that one thing I have to do is watch the clock like a hawk because every year I catch something. It's not like every game, but you know there'll be one or two episodes over the course of a week where there's some kind of screw up. Off more often than not, the timekeepers will like be the will self declare right away. The ump will come over, tell you what's happening, and let you know. But Part of the problem with going to end-only timekeeping is there's not an easy way to fix that problem, right? So that's that's kind of issue number one. Is the, I'm not surprised there's a timekeeping problem here, but if it's a matter of blowing 20 seconds in the fifth end, what would have happened is the first shot or two in end number in end number six, this would have been given back to Kui's time. But you can't do that under this system. So what what could they have done? Could they have given you know the five second call like they do in basketball, where they're with with their hand counting off seconds? I mean, what do you? I it it's it sucks because you know these guys are probably volunteers, 
And yes, this yeah. is a very big tournament, but it's still curling. So you're not, you know, these are not professional timekeepers. There has, they had, they, I don't know, there had, there has to be a way to make it clear that you have how, how many seconds you have before your clock starts again, right? Is that so? The umps aren't really supposed to tell you that. They really? they may kind of let you know or remind you, but there is really like their line is we're here to help, but we're not here to interfere. So they don't they don't come up and tell teams when they're running low on time. So that's kind of seen as interference, also or possible kind of coaching. So I, I haven't ever seen teams do kind of run out of time, especially in like these the B events that I'm kind of more of my environment. There's a lot of times that inexperienced competitive teams without clock management skills or strategies in place do either lose games on clock or are throwing like in a panic, their last two stones and the 10th end. So they're not supposed to interfere or tell you, you can go, you can always ask the official. The first thing they'll tell you at the event meeting is we're here to help. We'll, if you ask us a question, we'll answer it, but we don't tell you unless you've done a, unless you've done like an explicit rule infraction. So their job is not to say how much time you have left. That's that's on the players to watch the clock. So it's it's not like they have. It's not like there's much that could have been done on that front. Um, whether the timeout was clearly signaled or not, that's another question. Like like that, they do tell you that that you've got to be super explicit and you've got to make sure the umpire sees it. And it's not the umpire on the ice. It's there's a timekeeping bench above the umpire's bench. And the timekeepers are actually separate officials from the head ump. So there's actually a head timekeeper, mm-hmm. a head ump. They're all supposed to be wired up to each other, but sometimes because it's like remote radio control things, they they can kind of they can have communication errors too. I've seen that happen, like if the radio is not working. So all kinds of things could have happened. My my first reaction is the timekeeping system they've come up with is really complicated and it's assuming that everyone's on point, the timekeeper for the game, the head time official, the head umpire and the players. Right. And if you have multiple communication breakdowns, I'm not, I'm not surprised you end up in a gong show there. Right. It, the, the more complicated you make something, the better your system has to be. And I don't think that curling it's like timekeeping systems sophisticated enough to handle something like this. So it stinks because this, I mean, we will never see thinking time per end at a curling Canada event ever again. I can, I can guarantee you that after this happened, which I mean, I, I, I liked it. So, I mean, to look at, if you want to put on your professor of peel hat, how did, how did we get here? Cause we went, we used to have, you know, the games used to be timed and the time would only would would change over after shots were completed. Yeah. Um, so then we then we went to thinking time because okay, this penalizes, you know, this penalizes teams that like to play draws. So it encourages teams to blank in to bank time. So now we're going to go to thinking time so that you don't have to bank time uh, by peeling away a whole end. Then that wasn't enough. So now we're to thinking time per end, which I like because it it did. It shortened these games. The, these Canada Cup games got done in under three hours or at most three hours, which was great. Um, I, I personally think we'll eventually see eight in games rather than rather than 10 in games. Uh, someone one of the writers on SB Nation once wrote, 
nothing should take more than two hours. And I more and more tend to agree with that. I think we can get this stuff done in two hours, which the curling world cup game certainly did when they were doing their thinking time per end. Um, here's, here's my quick fix. Just once on the skips last shot, just once he's in the hack, that's it. He's just got to be in the hack before zeros. And I think if you do that, that's the quick fix. It's not adding, and it's not going to add a whole lot of time at most. You're looking at, you know, five seconds that wouldn't have oh, been that, that, clock, that's right? so easy to cheat right away right i just like if i'm a skip then I'll, i know i'm standing down at the hog line getting in the hack and then arguing for five minutes that's exactly what cooey would do but if, <laughs> if he the, then the way you say it is okay if you take your hand off the stone if you stand up then oh, your they, clock they, starts they, they would just <laughs> they, they would just sit in the hack and go I don't, there's no yeah. way that would work um but they're not going to do it. Do you think that they would sit there and argue about shots yes. from him, with him all the way down the <laughs> sheet would, for five, five, five minutes? And then five minutes, okay. he would argue for an hour. <laughs> so is so, Jonathan? What are are you, are you telling me that Kevin Cooey ruins everything? I mean, I, I, one of the things that's funny is <laughs> so I, I watched the Botcher game where he had the Gong Show early in the where week. He ran out of time. He ran out of time. The best part is the best part is later on that week he did it again. He did it again, and that was hilarious because it was like <laughs> Darren Moulding's like I didn't realize it took that much time. And here's where I'm like, bo- here's where I think Botcher's like the future because he like, he wasn't even phased. He's just like he just went. Well, someone's supposed to be watching that, and clearly it's not my job because I'm the skip. And then, and yeah. then he just went, you know, well, we're up one with hammer, so who cares? And he just kind of immediately refocused. And to me, I was like, whoa, okay, this guy's yeah. this guy's got ice in his veins. Like, like I would be, yeah, I would be breaking my broom over Darren Holding's head, right? But <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was clear that it's clear that someone on the front end's job is to watch the time, and and they had like the normal practice for a competitive team is the second to the lead. They're the time guy. And I was always our time yeah. guy. Cause I was our second. I was always the guy who had right. to watch the clock. And then the rule is you basically look at it in between ends and you basically got a checklist. Like yep. do, how much time do we bank? Do we got to play a bit faster and you communicate that. Right. So the best, the best was that time that we went to the arena to arena nationals, and they literally gave us a cheat sheet that said, "After this end, you should have this much time left." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like the umpires aren't there to screw the players over; they're there to help, but they they can't interfere. So I, it's I understand Benny being like pissed off and yelling at the ump and stuff, and there, there probably was a screw up yeah. somewhere, but they, it's not like they're sinister trying to like you know force Cooey to to lose because I think it takes too much time or something. Yep. So Hebert's Hebert's point, Hebert the 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 point Hebert was trying to make was, oh, if the ump doesn't come and yell at us that the rock's being pulled, we would have made that shot and gotten it to the forefoot. Well, the rock's being pulled because you ran out of time. Yeah. So why does it that's, matter? That's that's a lot of ifs. I, he was just angry in the heat of the moment. And I kind of write read it off like that, but that's that's a bit to me like saying. That's a bit like me saying that, oh, because the, the light went off too early on the buzzer beater and it clanked off the rim, we would have had it if the light hadn't gone off, right? If there's an argument about like time at the expiration of the thing, right? Like you, you, if he'd made, if the, if Kui had made the shot and they pulled it, I could see more controversy, but I'm like, he didn't make it. And we don't know if that's why or why not, right? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, have, I have to say, if, if it's me in that situation, 
I I'm the type of person I would probably have reacted the exact same way that Ben Hebert reacted in that in that situation, which is go to pretty much anyone who will listen and beg your point to try and to try and get that point. Because he was going from person to person, just like, will, will you fix this for me? Will you fix this for me? I mean, the best was Mark, like, Benny, do you want me to give you the deuce? It's like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, that was... But I, I, well, no, my favorite, my second favorite quote was Mark Kennedy saying, well, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> I think, I think Benny was just confused. He thought Mark was still on his team. <laughs> anyway. I mean, what, do you, yeah, I mean, what do you expect Kennedy to do there? You know, he's basically subbing on this team for one weekend. Is he going to go to Brad Jacobs and say, you know, I think we should give my friend a, a, a second try at this. <laughs> do over. I think we should let my friends throw their rock again. I mean, does he? I mean, I think I remember. I think I remember a Briar where I think the the Cooey Kennedy Hebert team might have been involved. I might be remembering this wrong, but the the red light erroneously went off on a rock. Yeah, like it was clearly out of his hand, and I think they they let them throw it again. So I don't know. Maybe Hebert was flashing back to that moment, hoping that they'd let him throw it again. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, no, I think one of them did do that. I mean, I have, there are times, I mean, people do it all the time with burned rocks, right? They just go, okay, like, yeah. whatever. So there is the spirit of curling thing there. I think the big issue, I'm, I'm not as convinced as you that this, this is dead. I think TV is driving a lot of these changes and they don't want the yeah. games going too long. So speeding up the pace of play is good. I'd say one, oh. if there was a software issue, which I suspect, I, I haven't seen the new software they're using for this, but if they're using the standard timing, curling timing software, the fact that you can't reset the clock if there's an error is a problem and they just need to spend the damn money to uh, yeah. get a coder to fix that problem. That's problem one. Problem two is all these timeout well, rules are too, they're, they're more complicated than the NFL challenge rules or something. I'm just like, they're too complicated. Just give, here's what I would do. I would just have three timeouts, two 30 second clock stops, and you can use any time you want. And then the standard call coach interaction one. That That's what I would do. And then you're allowed, you're allowed to use. You you only get you get the you get a thirty second in the first half of the game a thirty second in the half second half of the game and the coach interaction whenever you want. Just simplify it. I think it's that's pretty close. That's pretty close to what they did for this tournament. But they had two they had two timeouts and they had two thirty second extensions. Yeah. And the argument the 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 Kui team wound up using both of their timeouts on the same shot. So then, so they're already spending three minutes or something. So that, then, this give three one minute timeouts with coach interaction and say the coach come out once. That's it, right? So then you you add in the three minutes time, but it's I think part of it's the rule sounded weird. Like you could use the I can't didn't quite catch the whole argument, but you could use the extension once per end, but the timeouts you can't use more than one timeout. I, I'm not quite sure of all the weird sub rules they've got in there. I mean, all right. So I like thinking time per end. The question is, is it good for curling? Because it did it. It, it shortened the games. It it got people, you know, just getting in the hack and playing shots. But it led to some rushed rushed shots. It led to some misses. 
Uh, it led to some games being decided by misses instead of mates. Mm-hmm. So does that, I mean, does, if, if you're watching curling, you remember games that are won off of made shots way more than you remember games um, that are won because of misses. So at the end of the day, I, I like it, but is it good for curling? I think so. So I'm a little more optimistic. I think that what a couple things have to happen. So every single time they've changed the timing system up, there's been subtle changes in team strategies to how to deal with the clocks. And I, I'm going way back, but back to uh, Sandra Schmerler. She was actually Sandra Peterson at the time. So this is like how how long ago it was, right? This is like 25 years ago. One of the early iterations of the time clocks plus the free guard zone really crossed that team up early on in the day because they were they were also a talkie team. And the response was Schmerler would actually go stand at the throwing hog line after her first shot and then only come back down if they thought there was a conversation to be had. But otherwise, it was looking like a simple end. She'd just be down there to kind of bank time that way. And she'd do that very early in the game mm-hmm. often, right? And then the classic classic early, like the classic strategy for years has been play a couple of clean ends early on just to bank time that way, right? So thinking time was brought in in theory to kind of put an end to that. But still, teams kind of like to play a little bit defensive, even with thinking time, just to bank time. So that's why we got five rock. That's why we got, I think adding five rock plus this new timing system in the same season creates a lot of wrinkles because teams are figuring out new strategies and then probably teams will just have to figure out new time management strategies, right? So it's not enough anymore to simply have the the lead or second look at the clock in between ends and kind of keep track of where it's supposed to be. They're going to have to figure out other strategies within end to figure out how to bank time and whose job it is to remind us skip to throw the stone rather than argue about what the shots are. All right. So you're, you think, well, I, I think that this incident will kill thinking time for him, but you think we might see it in future events, huh? I think, I don't think, wait, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that. I don't think we're going to see it in a curling Canada event. I think the WCF may adopt. Well, it. if the WCF adopts it and they adopt it for the Olympics, Sorry? If they adopt it for the Olympics, then Canada has to use it because you, you can't have your team going to the Olympics not being super familiar with that timing system. Because you'll see teams lose games on, on the timing system until they're familiar with it. All right, then I think that's the only way that we ever say it again in, a, in, in an, in an all-Canadian uh, uh, tournament. <laughs> I, I I think it'll get tweaked. I, I, I'm not as sold as you that it's going to be killed. I think that obviously there's going to be a lot of feedback and it's going to be very negative from the GUI team for obvious reasons. But um, It was negative from a lot of players. I, you saw uh, they were asking about, I forget who it was. It may have been Brent Lang asking about it uh, on Twitter. And there, were a, there was a lot of negative reaction from players. It seemed like the fans liked it, but the players hated it. That's interesting. And so I, I guess we'll see what happens. It could be killed. But I, I, I just think that the TV is driving so much of this. So And TV wants a shorter game. And they, I, they, I, I actually like the long conversations because I like, like to geek out on the strategy. But I get the point of TV saying, look, we don't need this long five-minute conversation where it's just a bunch of guys standing on ice talking about what to do. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, they're, they're, you like having players mic'd up. You like hearing them talk strategy. You don't like hearing them talk strategy for just ad nauseum. Yeah. 
So, you know. I, and I like it because it gets the events done. And I said earlier, uh, earlier in this podcast that nothing should take more than two hours. So I am going to adhere to my own rules and, uh, and kind of wrap us up here. Um, Jonathan, anything that you want to add based off of what we saw earlier this week that we didn't, we didn't talk about? Uh, I, I not really, I think, no, I think it was a, it was a really interesting week, lots of curling coverage. So that's good to see. I think basically growing pains, right. And it, it, that's kind of early in the quad. So you see teams going through growing pains, but I think some of these events, the new timing rules, growing pains, curling world cup, going through growing pains, Jared Allen going through some curling growing pains, but we'll see where they all are in 2022. And that made, you know, that ruffled some feathers, but as someone who is trying to get people in the door at an arena curling club, uh, it's a great story because it got curling in the news. It got people thinking, you know, maybe I have a shot at the Olympics too. Um, you probably don't, but you might. So you should come to our curling club, do a learn to curl and join a league and start curling. And, you know, it gets people who, regardless of what their athletic history is, thinking, okay, this is a sport that I can try and possibly make the Olympics in. Um, and the goal is to get those people through the door. And my opinion is they'll fall in love with the sport and play it forever. And I hope that happens with the four NFL guys. I hope they stay with it, even if the, even if they don't have the success that, that they hope that they do. Um, so up next in the curling world... The pros are heading to, uh, pretty much directly from wherever they were, uh, either in Saskatchewan or in Ralston. They're heading to Newfoundland for the National, which starts December 11th and runs all the way through the 15th. So that'll be on Sportsnet if or uh, the Yar TV uh, paid um, paid streaming model if you're here in the states. Uh, Jamie Sinclair and Nina Roth from the U.S. are playing that event. None of the USA men's teams are playing in that event. The week after that, the Karazawa International is in Japan, December 20th through 23rd. I think that might be on YouTube. The women's side includes Laura Walker from Canada, Sophie Jackson from Scotland, and the top Japanese teams like Yoshimura, uh, some of the top Korean teams like Kim Min-ji and Gim Ung Chai, who we saw Anna Sidorova is going to that tournament. On the men's side, you have the Carruthers McEwen team, who is trying to get off the schneid after going 0-6 at the Canada Cup. John Schuster is going to go play in that event. So hopefully that event will be on YouTube and we'll have the ability to watch some of his games and then some of the top Japanese teams playing in that tournament, obviously. Uh, Yuta Matsumura um, and Team Iwe will be on the men's side as well. Thank you so much for listening to what was an extended episode of Rocks Across the Pond. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews help us get seen. 
um, help us get found by curling fans who may not know we exist. The, uh, the, the best thing that you can do for us is if you enjoyed this podcast, to tell a friend about it. Um, the second best thing you can do is if you didn't enjoy our podcast to lie and tell a friend that you did enjoy it. Um, if you need to get in touch with us, if you have an idea for a professor of peel segment, which we're going to try to get back in the habit of doing more in depth, uh, professor of peel segments for some of you who may be new curlers, uh, please get in touch with us. You can reach us at rocks across the pond at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at curling podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Facebook. So Until we talk to you again, thank you so much, and good curling.